0: Now, it's not often that you get to speak to a veteran from the World War II era, but it's even less likely you'll get to speak to one of the Marines that stood on Iwo Jima. So Frank's story is incredible, from his hilarious enlistment story, where he wasn't heavy enough to make the grade, so he improvised, through to some of his incredible deployments, having to fight with bayonets and knives in Guam, being shot multiple times on Iwo Jima, his incredible mental health story, and so much more. So I urge you to listen from beginning to end to hear the perspective of a true warrior of World War II. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of 561 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Frank Wright. Enjoy. So Frank, I just want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today.
1: Thank you. my pleasure to do this. It give me a little bit more uh, uh, exposure to get
0: rid of my, not get rid, uh, to uh, sell my book. Absolutely. Well, there's so much I want to ask you about. Because being a soldier from the World War II generation and reading your book, I see so many parallels with the issues that modern-day soldiers, firefighters, police officers deal with, you know, in in 2022. Um, So, for everyone listening, where are we finding you geographically today?
1: I'm uh, in Lodi, California.
0: And uh I'm uh, do you want further information on that? Just on what whatever you'd like to say. I'll I'll start with the beginning in a moment. But yeah, Five
1: south about thirty-five miles south of uh Sacramento. And uh and it's just uh, parallel to about San Francisco. So and it's a small town. Uh I, I don't know exactly how what the uh population is, but uh, it's a very nice town and it's uh, um, what brought me here in this particular area was uh, uh, nearly all of the houses in the area had such pretty lawns and uh, real green and very manicured so we liked that. So we moved up from Sacramento, uh, from uh, Stockton uh, to get into uh, the Lodi area. And then that gave us uh, a start on a, a long term. I have lived in Lodi uh, off and on for about uh, all 50, 60 years. So uh, it's uh, it's been uh, a long haul for me it, to be in one spot like this because I was used to uh, Moving around for a while with my wife about wow, every five years, and uh, then we finally we moved into uh, uh, into the California area, and uh, we just stayed down here. It was just too wet for me up in Oregon. No, so. yeah. yeah, go ahead.
0: No, so so I would love to start at the very beginning because you talked about traveling. Obviously, you've literally traveled around the world through through the military and then after. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family, your, what your mom and dad did and how many siblings you had.
1: Well, I was born in uh, uh, 1925. And uh, I had... Uh, uh, Two other brothers, two brothers with me. There were three and three boys in uh, our family. My dad was uh, on worked on WPA. He did two jobs, uh, working uh, with the post office and working on the state capitol as a uh, tool checker. So, uh, and my mother w- uh, worked for Gus Glasses. Uh, I I think it was called the Gus Blass uh, department store, and uh, I was uh, a school kid. And uh, we uh, had uh, uh, no transportation. We didn't have any automobiles until uh, uh, Arkansas gave the first World War veterans a bonus and, uh, then he purchased, uh, a car at that time with that, uh, with that bonus that the, uh, the state of Arkansas gave all the veterans on it, which was many years ago. And I don't know exactly when it was, but, uh, I know I was probably, uh, oh, four years old at that time, uh, so. And I went to school with, uh, at, uh, Little Rock, uh, Eastside Junior High School. No, first I went to the grade school was at Peabody. And then I went from there, uh, after sixth grade, went to, uh, Eastside Junior High. And then from there I went to Little Rock Senior High. And uh that was the came became a little famous when uh the uh Little Rock Senior High became uh integrated with the uh African Americans there and uh uh but there were they were not uh school was not integrated at the time that I was going there. Uh-huh. But uh, I s- stayed in high school until I was uh, in the tenth grade, I think it was, and I was sixteen. And uh, World War Three, World War Two, just <laughs> not we're not there yet. I hope not. World <laughs> War Two, uh, the uh, I was in uh, that was in nineteen forty one. I was in the uh, I was the eleventh grade at that time. I had not graduated high school from senior high on it. Actually, I was on I was making uh, airplanes, uh, model airplanes, for a five and dime store in Little Rock, and I'd make a airplane. They'd give me the airplane to. To make, I would make the airplane, and then I would give it back to them, and they would give me one for making it. So that's how I got my stuff. I would work for it on it. But I was re- making uh, airplanes at that time uh, for uh, for the uh, department store, and I heard the the information on uh, the radio that. Uh, Pearl Harbor had been bombed. And of course, I didn't know where Pearl Harbor was, but I knew that it was part of the United States. So I, uh, I started, uh, getting the, uh, the fever to join up with the service on it. And so I can get out of the area on it. And, uh, that's how I started into the, to get into the Marine Corps on it. So I went to the Navy and uh, I was too light. I went to the Marines and I was too light and uh, wasn't old enough. So I was supposed to be 17 at that time, but I couldn't, uh, I couldn't make the grade. But my, uh, my mother's sister was a notary public and she knew how to get around that and she made out a delayed birth certificate and uh gave me a different birth date so i joined the uh, marine corps using my uh younger brother's uh birth date and then that made me uh, uh just barely 17 so i took the the uh, his birth date all through the Marine Corps until us got uh, set, filed up for some Social Security. and when I became 65 and signed up for Social Security he asked me when I was born and so I was uh, said, well, I gave him my real birth date and he said, well the records show that you were born in December, not July. I said, "Well, I lied about my age." So they said, "Well, that's all right." Says, "I'll just change it here." Says, "A lot of servicemen uh, did that," and I had been uh, carrying my brother's birth date for many years until I, as to say, until I got up so I filed up and I had them corrected uh, from Social Security. They they went. Uh, I went from there on it. With for seven other people, uh, kids that, uh, were just 17, and, uh, we took the oath for the Marine Corps in, uh, January the 21st, 1942, which was just several, and uh, about three, or four weeks, uh, after Pearl Harbor.
0: So, well, you talked about being too light. Just to interject for a moment, uh-huh. when you were referring to that, your your physical weight was below the standard that they want. So, tell me the story about how you overcame the weight challenge.
1: <laughs> well, uh, the first thing he did, uh, he I wanted to know if I was uh, how old I was, and I told him this, this was the uh, recruit recruiting sergeant. And so I told him that uh I was seventeen, and he said, "Well, you don't look it." He says, "But you'll get on the scales and so i was uh i uh, I remember what the date the uh, weight was supposed to be, but I was about five pounds underneath the the standard weight of going in, and so I went home. And uh, start eating bananas. And finally, I just took some bananas and stuffed them in my back pocket, my front pocket, and all over. And then I made the grade by uh, by putting five pounds of bananas on my. I had some in my socks. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Uh, Yeah,
1: so. I really started my career with uh on a, by lying. So. I did too. And that was the first lie that I had ever made. It to.
0: See, It's interesting is when I went to become a firefighter, we had to declare, you know, the, the things that we'd done in the past um, that may be deemed unethical, whatever it is. And so, thinking that honesty was what they were looking for I said well a long time ago I did this and you know and I was immediately disqualified so I learned in the fire service that to become a firefighter you didn't talk about any of the bad stuff you ever did you basically lied about it pretended you were a choir boy and I got the job first time I started lying so I yeah. can totally understand <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Well I'll tell you uh, a little bit about that in a way a friend of mine did this about the same thing, except he was over in uh, in Denmark and he had not integrated over to the United States yet but uh, there there's two two lines in in Denmark that was going to be uh, one line was going to the gas chambers and the other line. Was going uh, into the concentration camp in another area, and they were the uh, lines were only about seven feet apart, and he wanted to go into the the other one because he says I heard that the the uh, that this line that we're in going to the gas chambers, so he he talked his brother he talked his uh, friend. To change the lines. And he says, no, I don't want to. They might, they might might shoot me if I try to. He said, well, I'm going to change. So he changed over to the one that was going to concentration camp and his friend went to the gas chambers. When he got over there into the line, they asked him, what kind of a occupation did you have? And are you, uh, uh, have an occupation Is it worthy of you to come to the United States? And he says, Yes, says I was a qualified bridge builder. They wanted to have a lot of bridges made and stuff like that, you know, for their military. And he says, and I was the uh uh bridge builder for the and a superintendent on that. So, what's your degree? And he told him some fictitious degree. He got uh, in by saying that, and he that he was a bridge builder. And he came to the United States, and he said that's what he was, and he got a job in uh, California to building bridges. And he didn't; he had never built one at all. But that was his qualification, so he went to uh, this town and start building bridges on it. So I don't know what. But he lied a good about coming in from his too. So it's, uh, it's not mine, but that's his story. So, but and uh, he still uh, he was uh, until oh about four or five years ago on, and he was still doing uh, bridges. So and, and built a
0: lot of bridges. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd be scared of driving that town if he didn't know how to yeah. build them though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so.
1: But a lot of people do, uh, did that. A lot of guys, uh came, uh, came into the service and just did everything they could to get in, uh, to pass examination. because, uh, most of them were, uh, out of jobs, didn't have, uh, um, an education, and they needed, uh, uh, people in the service and, uh, so, they took anybody then that time. If you could breathe, they said, "You come in." So.
0: Absolutely. Well, I want to get to your journey through the training because obviously you ended up in in a very unique um, group of, of Marines in the end. Before we do though, you just you mentioned something that was interesting to me that your dad was a World War One veteran. So you yeah. ended up seeing combat. You ended up struggling with the the physical and mental health elements of that did you ever see any of that exhibited by your father when you were young
1: my dad was over in france on it he
0: was a bugler
1: he played the bugle and at that time that's where most of the uh military uh reacted they got up with the bugle they went to bed with the bugle they got paid by the bugle they got they went to eat by the bugle they went to attack by the bugle so it was everything uh, was transferred. Now, it, of course, it's a heck of a lot different. But uh, that was his uh, thing, and I have plenty of pictures of of him at that time. And his brother uh, was uh, in World War One as well, and he was a well-educated uh, man, so uh, he had. Uh, uh, some kind of a—I don't never did know what my uncle—that would be my uncle—what he did on it. So, but uh, they lived in uh, in Arkansas. That's uh, where I was born in Arkansas. too. So. He saw action, but I don't know—I don't know what uh, what part of the country he was in on it. And of course, I'm. Um, uh, I was in of course europe area and i I never did know too much about the war in in europe, because it was all everything was crammed in my uh vocabulary it was uh, in the south pacific and running in that so but uh he understood what the uh, p t s d was but uh at the time. It was called combat fatigue. They didn't pick up uh, uh, the term uh, PTSD until, uh, or probably in the 50s, I would imagine. On it, but it still, you're still uh, combat fatigue, on it, and still use use that word at that time. But uh, it was, uh, I think there was a, a story with uh, in Patton's. Army and his about a uh, kid that couldn't take it any longer. Patton asked him how much, uh, how, uh, what was wrong with him. He said that I, that he had combat fatigue and so he slapped him. In fact, that was, uh, that was one of his uh, main things that they, when they did a life uh, uh, story on Patton about him hitting this kid that had combat fatigue because he said nobody has combat fatigue in my army so but uh, they were still using it at that time overseas as well
0: yeah well it's been amazing when you look back you've got so many terms you know soldier's heart shell shock thousand yard stare I mean these this same symptom has existed for hundreds of years just the name changed
1: Mm -hmm. yeah that's true uh, and it it could uh, I can I can see it and and it did it happened to me you know right I, and uh, they did not diagnose it at first after I got out so but, uh, there's a big story <coughs> in my book in regards to uh, how when I came back from uh, Iwasima they diagnosed me. At that time, I was shot all through my chest and my arm, and uh, was in surgery. And uh, I uh, got in an altercation with the surgeon because they were going to cut my arm off. So I I slugged him, knocked him off of the his uh, surgical tray off of. And everything, and he got mad at me, and so he diagnosed me as uh, combat fatigue. When uh, then he let me go, and when I got and I got into uh, San Diego, I think the hospital, they still had me down as combat fatigue and put me in the nut ward, and uh, they didn't take care of my wounds properly, and. I had to find someone to change my bandages, and it was quite a story on in my book on that. So, but uh, I was really worried at the time because uh, I thought that might uh, that might help. I mean, hurt me in uh, getting uh, a, uh, a Purple Heart on it if they saw my record and said combat fatigue. I had already been wounded one someplace else, so uh two different uh, areas, so
0: anyway, read my book. You get the big story. Yeah, no, there's there's you know so much description of, of so many of the battles that you were in. Um so I want to get to that journey now, if that's okay. Yeah. <clears throat> so talk to me. You are a a very small framed, brave sixteen and a half year old boy. Who finds himself in the Marines? So walk me through the initial boot camp and then the you know the, the Raider selection and then what that looked like for you.
1: On january the twenty first, nineteen forty two on it. There's seven uh, Arkansas boys that had taken the oath and we were put on a train. To go to boot camp. Boot camp was in San Diego, uh, Marine Corps Recruit Depot on it. Uh, and when we got there, we had, uh, three Marines waiting for us at the station that uh, said on it. They had already picked up, uh, some, uh, from, uh, other trains before from other states, and they were waiting for us and as I said when I got there uh, on it I was uh, the one of the uh, kids was the carrier or the uh, transfer papers and he handed all the papers over to the to the sergeant. And I said that he was the devil. And he had two other helpers on the because we were now being called everything in the book besides young men going into the service on uh-huh. And, uh, but you cannot do that now on it and boot camp. But, uh, I'm not, you're not supposed to do that when you're now. But anyway, I was in, uh, in a platoon, I had uh, a sergeant, or the head DI, drill instructor, and, uh, and two uh, corporals that were assistant DI's. And uh, I was in platoon 150. 150. I stayed in that uh, for, I think it was eight weeks. At that time, but I'm not positive it was 8 or 10. But, uh, we got, uh, our indoctrin- indoctrination, I guess, with, uh, what the Marine Corps was all about and how we, uh, reacted reacted to those above us and, uh, with them, uh, I think what they call it, God and Country and Family, Marine Corps. So, anyway, we went through that uh, training, and uh, I remember one one incident that I had. I was in what they called the Feather Merchant area, which was the smaller Marines and the company, because there were some of them in there. There were six of them. Six foot seven, another one was, uh, six three, I think it was, something like that. So they were in the head and we were in the back, we were the short guys on it. And in fact, there's one kid who was, uh, a lot smaller than I was, and I don't know how he got in, but I think it was, uh, because he was in, what sh- came in from Chicago. But, uh, they were counting the cadence and they, we were marching along and he and the sergeant uh said platoon's ho and uh so we stopped and uh, i was about uh 30 inches from my chest to the man in front of me and, and the sergeant came over and he whapped me on top of the head with his swaggering stick and uh He said, Boy, what's your name? I told him, Private Wright, sir. He said, Well, Wright, you're all wrong. He said, just 40 inches back to breast. So I got my first whack with uh, with the swagger stick for not uh, being the proper number of inches between the two of us. But that was about it for uh, me as a I was a very uh, good and studious uh, Marine, uh, and uh, I learned a lot. And I uh, was—I uh, um, knew that what they were teaching us was something that was needed in their training, and I paid very good attention to it. And I carried that training clear through my Marine Corps. Uh, Tour about four years. Uh, and I thought, and I blessed those kids uh, that were tolerated, tolerable to me, or as I go. And I went up through boot camp. My first uh, uh, duty station was up in, uh, posted in, uh, in Tongue Point, Oregon. Which is, uh, right in Astoria, Oregon, which is the mouth of the Columbia River. I stayed there on guard duty. We guarded, uh, the mountain that we were, it was a large mountain. I called it a mountain, uh, right there, uh, uh at the, near the mouth of the Columbia. And, uh, because they had, uh, ammunition stored in the, uh, uh, the area and we were guarding garden all day and all night And then uh, we got Liberty every once in a while uh, and uh, I was uh, transferred a temporary transfer over to well that's another story while we were our station and uh, and tongue point the uh, Japanese and uh, they shelled the, uh, I think it was the oil fields in uh, in Southern California. Then uh, they finally went on up, up the uh, coastline, on up to from California up, up to the Columbia River, and they were heavy heading for Portland and Seattle, where they were uh, building warships. There was two submarines that came in on the river by following the minefield. The fishermen who were out fishing and then they'd come in. When they were come in, they'd raise the, they'd pull the, uh, the mines off the side and to let the fishermen in and the uh, Japanese came up uh, right behind them and came in on the Columbia River. And they stayed there, a couple of nights first, and then they then they finally they shelled the military base, which was the first time any foreign country had ever shelled a military base in in World War One or Two, or as that goes. Anyway, they came and shelled uh, shelled Fort Stevens, and uh, didn't do any damage. They knocked down a couple of. Uh, outdoor movies, I think it was, or something like that. But, uh, they didn't do very much harm. But they scared the hell out of everybody uh, up there. They thought that was the first wave coming in from, uh, and going in, uh, to Astoria. Anyway, we got, uh, we got the, the alert sign, alert, uh, we were on, uh, on, uh, on Liberty at the time. That they shelled for Stevens, which is only about uh, oh six or eight miles from Tongue Point there, and uh, we were we tried to help them out, but they I explained it pretty well uh, more thorough than that uh, in my uh, book, but uh, then after they they were finally uh, I think they were sunk. It might have been off on, on Oregon coast, but I'm not positive. Anyway, uh, about two, three weeks or so after that, uh, they transferred me and uh, and I think it was six other uh, Marines to uh, Port Angeles, Washington, to teach teach them how to fire uh, the 20 millimeter ammunition. 20 millimeter. Uh, they called it machine gun at that time, uh, on it. and uh, we stayed up there for about two, about two weeks, I guess. And then they shipped us back to Tung Point, and we were uh, kind of like the special forces uh, for planning a uh, to put the 20 millimeters all over the mountain up there, the marine, the uh, ammunition hill. We stayed there, uh, on and uh, I had a an accident falling off one of the cliffs up there, and uh, I was in the hospital for a little bit, uh, a couple of weeks or so, and uh, then about that time, the uh, the Marine Corps was uh, forming a new uh, special forces called Marauders. And they had, uh, some, uh, trouble getting, uh, enough people to volunteer for it. They, they sent individuals to different, different posts around the West Coast to join up. And, uh, they, they took the best that, uh, in their mind, Marines that would qualify as a raider on it. And they had their eye on uh, young young kids, but they were in they were fit and had a good record. And uh, uh, I had shot expert rifle and expert pistol, and uh, I had machine gun and uh, bayonet uh, training. Uh, had uh 20 millimeter training and so i uh and i shot uh, shot really uh, a good i uh, my my score was three point five five out of four so anyway and uh so they say well you uh you would qualify if you want to go so I told them I wanted to go and i wanted to fight uh, so he said, well, if you, well, you'll have to be down there within two weeks on right, So I got two weeks uh, to get, make my mind up and then go. One of the reasons was because I had uh, had good training and had good reports from my boot camp and my my training uh, and my, not training, but uh, on, uh, my uh, good conduct uh, with with the uh, Navy on the uh, on Tongue Point uh, Island, I Tongue Point uh, Station there, but uh, I was transferred from there to uh, I think it was Campo-June, which was which was uh, in uh, San Diego uh, area on it. I think that's where we first uh, started from and then we went into uh camp pendleton area um, and we were in camp pendleton uh on october nineteen forty three and uh, stayed in october stayed in uh in camp Pendleton and uh, james roosevelt jimmy roosevelt uh was major at first, but he came in as uh, colonel. And he was uh, President son of the president of the United States at the time. And he was my commanding officer. On it. And he came in in November of 1943 on it. And I, I actually was in uh, Raiders uh, about two weeks before he was uh, signed up as our commanding officer. And with that, I had... Uh, I was signed as a squad leader from the Raiders and, uh, I stayed in there for, from October until, uh, February. I think it was February. Anyway, we left, we left, uh, for overseas on February the 11th. I think that was in 1943. The other was in 1942. Anyway, I can't remember right
0: now. So My, my memory is not very good. I think it's incredible, considering I already do um <laughs> I want to get on one thing before we talk about your overseas deployments, which I th- thought was fascinating. Talk to me about the the hand-to hand combat training that you did because seeing words like judo in the nineteen forties seems very progressive to me
1: yes uh we we were taught in narrators we were taught uh the uh art of self-defense and the things that we were taught were to kill someone. It wasn't. It wasn't for uh, anything. Uh, and if we were going to get in a, in a fight with the enemy, we weren't to get. In, we were not going to get in there just to wound him or to maim him. It was to kill him. And so everything we had terminated with uh, the idea of killing someone, and uh, we had. Uh, several uh, trainees that had been uh, over to England uh, to uh, with the uh, special forces over in England uh, be trained on the art of self-defense over there, which was a little bit different than the art of defense in the United States. But anyway, those trainees uh, Happened to be uh, in our uh, fourth raiders, which was nice. So we got a lot of a uh, lot of personal stuff because they were so close to us in our, our own platoon. So we fought uh, the battle in San Clemente. I think we took uh, and captured San Clemente oh, many times on our training. I think the Nautilus we trained on the Nautilus and I think it was the submarine and the uh, USS waters and I think it was uh, the USS bent seemed like there was another submarine also down there but I can't remember that thing but but the salt Nautilus is what I'm on. but we'd come in to the coast with a submarine and we'd get up the, at nighttime and we'd uh, surface and then pull out our rubber boats and get on the rubber boats and paddle into the beach and then uh, uh, we would uh, deploy out from the beach in the different areas and finally we'd get into the to the ones that had beach houses down there and so we captured them and it was a, It was hard. <laughs> it was really hard. Hard training. Very hard training. Uh, there's two or three steps above what you tra- what what the normal uh, marines were getting at the time. So.
0: Yeah, I can only imagine as well. When we think of submarines, we think of them today, you know, with all the advanced equipment. But I've I've seen some of the World War Two era submarines, and they uh, they. Just to get in one of those and be under the water seems like it took an amazing amount of courage.
1: Well, <laughs> yeah, okay, and uh, it's very close quarters. I had uh, one of my bunks had torpedoes right underneath where we were sleeping on it, and uh, the sailors uh, were very eager to teach us Marines different things about the torpedoes and one of them was the torpedo juice that they had on it. That's 190 proof alcohol. uh, They'd have a canteen full of that and then uh, I wish they would rob from torpedoes around there and then they'd make us uh, uh, drink it, and you know, if we wanted to go to chow or something like that, we had to take a taste of it or something. So you don't need, you don't, uh, you just don't take a swig of of 190 proof alcohol uh, without it burning. So, but there's uh, <laughs> a lot of lot of stuff goes on. People have uh what is yes. it, claustrophobia? Yes, yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, that's. Uh, because uh, and you can and you can hear different sounds that you just don't hear all the time. But of course they do. They the Navy does, but the Marines uh, didn't want uh, them. So. But it's uh, the training is is course, real hard on uh, them. Uh, and of course they uh, they train now uh, with the. Uh, the same thing, except they carry it a little bit further than that. They, uh, it's a different type of training. The special forces now are, are well trained on it. But they, uh, they have all this electronic stuff that goes along with it. And they've got to carry that on their back. They've even got their own uh, drones, I think they call them, uh, military drones on it. They have those, to, uh, they have to carry those. Everything has to be carried on uh, it like that. But now, everything, uh, at, at now you, you ride a helicopter someplace to your destination on uh, it. And before, we were trained to walk, and we walked to our destination. We walked to the different places on uh, it. We walked to go get the... The chow. Well, a lot of times, I had to walk twenty-five miles just to get breakfast. And that was just not one time, but several times we had to do that. And of course, Jimmy Roosevelt was right along with us on it. He wasn't riding in a jeep or anything like that. He walked right with us on it. And he got the same blisters that we got. So I'm just trying to think a while ago about uh, this one. I think it was Barocco that we attacked on it, and the, uh, and the rubber rubber boats, and uh, even the uh, six-man boat, eight-man boat on it. The uh, winds blew, off, blew us uh, off course, and uh, they were out of uh, 15 miles off the landing area. They were supposed to land. Uh, the wind blew them off course. And they land about 15, about 14 to 15 miles away from the real uh, landing zone. And they had to, those that were in those two or three boats um, had to walk through the jungle to get it back up to the uh, landing zone. And before they even fired a shot, that far off on it. so all of this hiking and stuff it came it was it was for it was needed and especially if you're in the jungle like we were on it. and, yeah. but uh, it's a different thing now but uh, and it's a lot different than just regular boot camp uh, but you do get training in boot camp and I when I the first bayonet training I had on, uh, uh on boot camp in San Diego, and uh, came in handy when we landed on Guam. Um, and, uh, I was in bayonet fights on Guam, there several different, uh, bonsai attacks on it that we had. And I thanked my old sergeant for his training us at that time. Because I learned a few more of my own, but <laughs> uh, it was a training that you think you you think it's hard on you at that time, but boy, I tell you, you use your training. And so.
0: Well, I think that's a really important you know perspective to hear from someone you know from your generation. Firstly, it's interesting with the the technology because what really amazes me about the World War Two and World War One era is you didn't have GPS, you didn't have computers, you didn't have drones and, you know, planes in the sky with radar. So as you mentioned, you know, once you land, that's where you are and you might have to hike to where you're supposed to be. You've got no way of really knowing where the enemy are. So that in itself is incredible. But in the fire service, something that I've talked about a lot is I was very fortunate to get some really, really good, incredibly hard training early in my career, just by chance, the departments I went to. And I feel that really set the bar for the standards of, you know, my firefighting career. Not saying I was a great firefighter, but I was definitely held to a high standard. So, um, talk to me about when, when you first deployed your first combat and, and there you are as a young, you know, young boy from the U S, how that, high level of training as a raider carried over to your first combat mission
1: well uh, first thing is the, uh, the training that we had in San Diego uh, the fourth raiders were the I'll, I'll, I'll say the guinea pig of uh, for uh, determining what a raider should be trained at. When we left in uh, 1943 on it, uh, February the 11th, they named the course that we had to take on it, they named that uh, as a combat course, and every Marine that went overseas had to go through combat course on it. That was caused, and I think it still is, that plus that, uh, other things that uh, they had to learn. Of course, as the, the type of the enemy that they had to face. Uh, so when we left, we left, of course, uh, as I say, in February, and we went to uh, New Hebrides Island, same committee, New Caledonia. And uh, we were training all the way over there uh, uh, on on board ship. We arrived there were trained on on New, uh, New Caledonia and New Hebrides. Then we got word that we were going to be transferred over to little a little place called uh, Guadalcanal and our our company and our platoon were transferred over there and we were set up to patrol on Guadalcanal, Henderson airfield that there was on um, and uh, and around uh, the uh, some town I don't know which one it was. I, I wasn't very uh, too much active on that because we were in the as a uh, backup and clean up mop up of what do you want to say in, uh, on Guadalcanal? We were looking for stragglers, we were looking for holdouts, and, uh, we were shelled by hand grenades. I think we had two, two people were wounded, uh, in our company from there. But we got into the, act, we got in a little action on Guadalcanal, uh, they, and, during this during our period of uh, going out in the jungle and searching for these holdouts on uh, the seabees had landed and were building the uh, tent camps for the uh, uh, Marines that were following uh, behind uh, behind our our companies because, uh, they were going to use Guadalcanal as a jumping-off place for all of the uh, South Pacific, and North Pacific area, and uh, I got a chance to fire, but uh, I was scared all the way through. When you hear uh, you're out in the jungle and you hear something firing going on, you don't know if it's uh, at you or or what. Get scared. But the proper uh, platoon sergeant—I think I think we just had a sergeant platoon. We had a platoon sergeant there, and uh, he would always holler out, you know, about uh, that it was two miles out, two miles over, or whatever it was—to calm us down on it. But we were scared. But that was my first. Exposure to someone firing at us. After we got uh, through with those area around Henderson Field, we uh, went to area where we were to stay and be as a uh, as our uh, final uh, camp encampment there on on the canal. The C B S had a great. They are great people. They have the best food in the Pacific. Um, and we used to we used to go and uh stand in their chow line and hike for so many miles just to uh to go in their chow line just to get something to eat besides uh, uh canned dog food as we said. So. <laughs> <laughs> but uh that's where that's the spam. So and we after we got there, uh, then uh Finally, the most of the uh, the Japanese had uh, been captured or killed. We were still, but we still had uh, perimeter guard duty all the time, and we were scared that they were coming in on it. so we still uh, always uh, worried about that, uh, about them sneaking in back behind us, so. The Japanese had figured out uh, the area that uh, our planes were coming over, and they set up uh, a lot of uh, radio radio stations along in those areas in the Solomons. The Solomons is a a bunch of small islands, and uh, all connected to in the Solomons, as when they were uh, New Georgia. Was the uh, largest one? There's Barroco, there's uh, uh, Price Anchorage, and uh, but uh, we were uh, stationed uh, in Broughton Canal, which was one of the largest of the uh, of the Solomon's. We went to uh, our our. Uh, I was, our uh, area was into, uh, for Barocco, we went into Barocco. Well, we were still with, we were still using uh, the rubber boats at that time for our attack force. on it. And, uh, which they found out that the fact that rubber, by going into rubber boats, with rubber boats, they uh, make an island had been had used them almost exclusively, and it did work out. And uh, Colonel Carlson uh, even wrote, wrote a, wrote a uh, battle report about the uh, uh, motors that were uh, the outboard motors that were on uh, uh, on the uh, little eight-man boats that we were using on it. So we were using. Uh, at that time, uh, they were changing over from r- rubber boats, park rubber boats, and we weren't using the submarine. We were using the, uh, uh, happened to be one of the, uh, USS Waters. And, uh, we had been, we had trained on that one time on San Diego. Uh, and we landed on Baroco, and, uh, the guys that were in the smaller boats got blown off course again and uh their uh outboard motor got uh drowned out, so they had to take the oars and pull themselves in on the, with the oars. And they were off course. They came in uh and uh The Japs had uh, their radio stations and stuff further in than uh, we had anticipated. And uh, we were shot at and uh, we lost a lot of men at that time on it, but not on my company. My company was up up, up on the other side of the of the uh, supposedly uh, radio stations, Um, but uh, we started walking in there and uh, we walked into a trap on it. We had to go through the coconut farm over there and uh, the japs were all over the the, uh, foliage and the trees and stuff on it. And uh, they had uh, machine guns that were, uh, and small pillboxes that they had built out of, uh, out of the uh, down trees, and uh, we we were trapped. Uh, I was I was using a, a 55 caliber. Uh, and I tagged boys and a tank rifle at the time. And we were stationed in, uh, along the field, along the road that was heading into that area, uh, that the guys were trapped. They had called for help and we went out, we went in there with them and we got stuck in this trap as well. They were perfectly well organized on it. And uh, had a lot of corpsmen in there taking care of the kids as they were, were shot. Father, Father Redmond was our pastor of all the denominations, I would say. And he was reading rights to everybody that uh, he would see that, that they were dead. And uh, the uh, martyrs that we took, knee martyrs we took, on it were not uh, very accurate to the point that uh, we couldn't see them. So if we didn't know exactly where they were. They were very very well uh, camouflaged. So we found out I, I was carrying a sidearm. And uh, a Thompson submachine gun at the time, so we wouldn't, uh, we, we couldn't pick out one person, or one uh, one area that uh, the uh, jeeps were hiding. Uh, we just took the took the submachine gun and just sprayed the whole top of the tree, and it just. Hoping that one of the bullets would get on someone. And, and we did. That's one way we got out of some problems that we had up there. But they were, uh, we didn't know for sure if we got them or not because they were tied into the trees. And they wouldn't fall. So, we had a lot of wasted ammo on that, one of that reason. So, but finally we, we, uh, Broke out of that particular situation and made it around them, came in from behind them on it. And at that time, we found the radio station, destroyed all the radio stations that we could come to, and then uh, come, come back to the, the main road. And it could, we had, uh, some of the kids were uh, transported out of the area by. I uh, By three airplane. Don't remember the who it was. Um, I had uh, uh, at that time, well, before we left, um, brought a canal, I had malaria, and I was in, I was in the hosp- in the field hospital, uh, and I heard that they were our, my company and guys were going to leave. And uh, for uh, an operation, so I snuck out of the out of the uh, the field hospital and met my squad at uh, at the ship and uh, uh, came in on it. Well, it just so happened that uh, Jimmy Roosevelt, our our commanding officer, he got malaria as as well. Uh, at that uh, on Guadalcanal. But Guadalcanal was sort of gone wet with uh, uh, swamps and uh, and little back streams and stuff like that, and mos- mosquitoes. And I don't know how many, I, I, I wouldn't even guess if it was 40% or 50% or something like that. The Marines got uh, uh, malaria off of them. But anyway, uh, our commanding officer, Roosevelt, he got it as well. He was in uh, the field hospital when we left. But when we got back from, uh, when we finally got off of uh, Barocco, uh, part of them, of uh, the uh, guys, went around to Rice Anchorage. Uh, and uh, I was one of the, in one of the companies that uh, uh, went over there. and to uh, destroy some uh, radio equipment. and uh, we went by uh, uh, by native boats on and they rowed us across the way for that. They came back, through the Barocco through got aboard our ship, came back to uh, Guadalcanal and, uh, Jimmy Roosevelt, uh, had been transferred out of, out of, uh, his field hospital back to the United States. They blew him out on him. But when I got back, I was still shaking. And, uh, and I think part of it was, uh, from fright and the other part was from, from the malaria, but they, they diagnosed it as, uh, AWL and uh, but they wiped that off because they knew that I had snuck aboard a ship <laughs> to, to, to get into to get into combat real tight combat which was, I was crazy but uh, anyway but uh, I went back into the uh, to the field hospital uh, the field hospital on uh, stayed in for a while and uh, I think it was at that time that the uh, uh, first and second raiders had had wiped out most of the uh, Japanese force around the island, on, it. and the third and the third raiders were coming in someplace up. I, I don't remember where they were from, and the fourth raiders were coming back to their regular camp on it, so they had all four raider companies that was overseas were all on Guadalcanal. That was a design uh, thing because that's when they wanted to break up the raiders. The raiders were a smaller outfit and uh, uh, were trained for hit and run, a lot of night fighting and stuff, and they wanted to get rid of those. Tactics and uh, have a more larger type of uh, action. So, most of the raiders uh, of of the third division, of the fourth raiders, uh, were reassigned to, I think it was the fourth division and the sixth division, as well as the first and second. Raiders, they were in uh, uh, that. I was still in the hospital uh, and I was I got uh, discharged out of the hospital on December on December the 25th. And uh, I went to uh, a, a reserve unit uh, and from there, I went into the third division, the 21st Marines. I was assigned as a squad leader. Well, that's one of the reasons that I, that most of the fourth raiders, had been assigned to, through the fourth division, and I didn't go in with the fourth division at that time because I had already been discharged out of the hospital, uh, and to a reserve unit. To wait to go into the third to uh, the third division, as the third division and the 21st Marines were being uh, uh, formed at that time too. So, so I went in from the third division. Now, now the Boroko was the first really uh, fighting for the uh, fourth Raiders. We had been trained all this time. We really only trained and only fought one big battle over there. We were in the tail end of the the type of uh, action that they needed uh, at that time. uh, And the 3rd Division, then, we had a different course as far as I was concerned. I had a different commander and a different company. Uh, the 21st Marines, but I was still the squad leader and still responsible for the seven men. So, we were trained much differently uh, than uh, the Raider training on it, and uh, and the reason was that were, we were being uh, trained for a uh, larger a larger island that we going going to come in. We were not going to be going in on a small small uh, unit like the battalion. uh, We had two divisions that were going to be going at the same time. And uh, so the uh, third and fourth and part of the fifth the the second and third division and part of the uh, fourth division I think it was, uh, were being trained to go to uh, Guam and Tinian uh, and Saipan, it uh, really it was a Saipan first, and Saipan then, then then uh, then it would be Tinian, then it would be Guam on it. But uh, the uh, third division was kind of reserved on a, on a reserve until uh, the 3rd uh, and 4th had uh, uh, attacked and uh, partly secured Saipan. And then they went on over to Tinian, and, uh, which was a, a smaller island and that was uh, situated between Saipan and, uh, and Guam. And then, uh, and Guam, I don't know too much about Saipan, and, uh, but uh, Guam, that was our, uh, main objective on it. So, we, uh, we came in on, uh, at first, we came in on small boats on it, and, uh, LSTs, which is the landing ship tank, I think they called it. Then they transferred us over to, oh, I, w- I would say maybe a uh, half mile away from the landing zone and uh, went into uh, Amtrak's. And the reason for the transfer from the boats to the Amtrak's was because Bomb had so much uh, coral along this landing zone and they would just creep over the over the coral on it. And uh, a regular boat would be going through, it would tear the bottom up, so we transferred over. And we came in on Amtrak, we landed, and the... Uh, I think it was on uh, open rice field that we, uh, our our company was uh, going through. Yeah, I remember the had a big water buffalo out there in the middle of the rice rice paddies, eating while we were shooting and hand grenades and mortars and stuff like that going over and it. Didn't, it didn't bother him a bit. And it came through there we had a comparative light landing but uh, it was quite uh, quite noisy with uh, with mortar uh, that they were shooting on there and it still scared us on but you' you're scared but you don't uh, you don't show it and you're not uh, It's not. It's a different type of scare on it. Worried, I guess, maybe be the more worried about. Am I going to be one of the guys that's going to get hit? We came on in. We had right at the end of the rice field. There was an incline. We went up that incline on it, and right at the top of the incline, we we were met with. uh, Tank tanks and uh, uh, and ground troops there, and we fought fought ourselves right to the top of that and uh, that incline, and it that took that took most of the day going across the rice paddy and over that incline. So we dug in right there, and uh, we had. Uh, two companies that was uh, attacked there. But one of the main things that we had, that the main objectives that we were uh, supposed to, to go to was the concentration camp that the Japanese had on the island. When the Japanese uh, attacked the uh, Guam in 1941, they took uh, all kinds of uh, Marines and Navy and Corpsmen on it. And uh, they put them in the concentration camp just on to end, get in them a little bit. And P Company was, I think, I, would think, I think it was P Company was charged with taking uh, and go right on through that in, incline around and to the uh, a concentration camp or internment camp what do you want to call it and uh, released all of the um, rescued all of the prisoners that they had taken at that time on it and then uh, which did uh, I was not involved in that going my uh, my company a part of I think there was a platoon that went with uh, the peacock on my my thoughts that we might have heard that. But uh, anyway, we started digging in there, and we dug in, and I took took Nellie all all day coming through there, and then uh, the uh, we was digging digging foxhole was there, and about uh, that the afternoon, that evening rather. On it, uh, just before dark. On uh, it, we heard all kinds of information: uh, tanks and mortars, guys hollering, yelling, screaming. And then we had uh, what they call a bonsai attack. And there was a uh, about two or three hundred Japs came out of the brush and attacked us on it, and we were told to stay in our foxhole on it, don't, go, don't get out because of you. If we stay in the foxhole, at least we've got some kind of a protection. But you can't stay in your foxhole when you've got mortars coming in there. There's just no way. It, that's a, it's, anyway. So they ran down. The, they were coming down the hill on it to try to drive us off the island, and uh, that's where my bayonet practice came into hand. There on it, I shot what I had, and and uh, and it was harder on the first time because that was the first. Time that our company had never been set aside for that uh, for a bonsai attack, but uh, we killed a lot of lot of them and uh, the tanks and drove the tanks most of the tanks back up in the back heels there, and so they didn't they didn't. Uh, Push her off the push push us off the island like their plans were. The next day, after counted all the noses that were still alive, uh, started up toward uh, the coastline toward uh, Argana and Agat or Agat, on it. And uh, we fought the pill boxes and stuff all the way up the island up there until we got to Agat. Which was about the third or fourth day, and then the uh, headquarters company came in right behind us and stayed in on uh, on the beach side, and we were uh, going up on the uh, that incline uh, on it, and just kind of looking over the beach on it, and we got up there until on uh, all kinds of pillboxes we had to go through, and then uh, that night, we dug in again, we were digging digging in, and that night, the, uh, we heard just all these tanks coming down the, the road where we were, and they had about 400 Japs following in behind the tanks. And they were heading for the uh, headquarters company that was down below us on the lower end of the incline, and they started fighting and stuff. And I had I got up out of my foxhole and uh, I shot one clip of uh, eight as it came down, running down the hill on toward me. I changed, got me another round, got me another clip and stuck it in there. And got it in there just in time. I shot that out. I shot eight more. Um, and uh, I was unable to uh, load, reload because I couldn't find another clip out of my bandolier. So I uh, started using my bayonet, and some of them were jumping over others that were down already. And so when Jeff got, uh, he came in. He was a good-sized man, and uh, I stabbed him, and uh, he uh, started. Fighting with me, and I started backing up uh, and uh, stumbled over the little berm that I had put around my my uh, my foxhole that I was digging, and hooked uh, that, and I started falling. And just as I started falling down, he jabbed me in the stomach, and I fell down on the uh, my back in the foxhole and he was standing right above the foxhole and he was getting ready to jump down and the guy from the next foxhole over his area, and he, he shot the guy in the back or it was a, or he stabbed him, one of the two, I don't know how, but he fell. He fell down on top of me in the foxhole. As I fell down in the foxhole, my hand hit my, my gung-ho knife and uh, he fell on top of me and I grabbed that knife. My hand was on it and I grabbed it and I shoved it through his neck and his throat and I killed him there laying on top of me. On and then the tanks, the American tanks came in, then to join the fight from below, and they they had been stationed down below the headquarters company, and they came in up the up the hill, and they just chased those uh, the Japs back into their holding grounds up and further on back and back, and I stayed in Oxo with this guy on me because I didn't know how deep that, that uh, stomach wound was. So I held on to it and he just bled all over me. But anyway, I got... Uh, so the next morning, we had the corpsmen and the corpsmen came up from the headquarters company and they started counting noses. On it and see who the people were and how bad they were. They pulled the guy off of me and they thought I was done for, but it was just his blood, not mine. And uh, we stayed, uh, they pulled me out on it. I had, uh, uh, as I had fallen back backwards, he stabbed at me. He stuck me in the stomach, and it went kind of sideways. It didn't go straight in, so it went along like under the skin in there, and uh, just uh, stuck the cap- capillaries and things. So, but uh, anyway, they pulled me up and wiped me off and got it and then, he, and then they. Uh, Put bandages on me, put some sulfur on me, and they take me up. And he says, oh, okay, everybody, everybody stay here that's going to stay here, going to the headquarters company on it. Well, I just, I want to stay with my men. So there's only three of us left me and my BA arm and my uh, scout. So I just stayed with them, and, and I bundled up my stomach and held on to it, and we started on up further on up through, through Ghana and Haggard, And We came across a lot of uh, Jap officers had committed Harry Carry uh, in the tanks. They didn't want to be captured, I guess, and they so and then. Uh, I was bleeding that night a little bit, so one of the corpsmen came up from the headquarters company. As aside from that, I met that same corpsman in San Diego at the Ring Raider Association meeting down there. He was one of the guys that came up and he'd take me. He came up. And they wiped all the blood off on it and put re-stuck, re uh, re-applied re uh, sulfur. So, I think they call it sulfur or sulfide. Sulfur, I think And then uh, And then, then he taped it. He pulled the skin together on it and taped it. And from that time, it didn't look too bad, bad uh, by the time that he had gone through that. Got into... Then uh, we started... Uh, on further on up the island and I found uh, that one of my real good friends lieutenant uh, Leonard had uh, been killed by leading a charge on the, on the box one of the pill boxes there on, and uh, he and uh, lieutenant homebre homebre Her buddies with me uh, on uh, on Guadalcanal. They were in the Raiders. Uh, So anyway, we went on up through there, and uh, we stayed on uh, on Guam for on that end for three more days, going up there, and finally we. Got into, oh, my, uh, one of my, my scout, I think it was, uh, Navarro found two cases of sake and, uh, sake is rice wine. <laughs> yeah, it's good.
0: <laughs> so I, used, I lived in Japan for a while, so I know exactly oh, what you're yeah. talking about.
1: yeah well, uh, it, uh. We got on, got uh, that, and then, but we couldn't drink it all. We couldn't drink the thing, so there it was all unopened. So we found a good spot and we dug a hole and and buried it, and we knew where it was going to be. So, so we decided to uh, amongst ourselves to leave it there, not drink it, and. Uh, didn't have time. or had other things to do. Uh, we went. To, uh, I don't remember the little town that was right again and there that. Anyway, Anyway, uh, we stayed there for the on the fourth, fifth, fifth night, sixth night, and uh, then we moved inward. And by that time, uh, we had. Pretty well got uh, um, situated because all of the all of the uh, main Japanese area uh, uh, attack force had been are uh, already been uh, wiped out or chased back way on the other side. So I don't remember where it was that we were stationed or posted there on uh, it. But uh I'm gonna I'm gonna pull back a little bit and say when we were on board ship coming to Guam, they took all our money away and gave us gave us what they call Hawaiian dollars. Now Hawaiian dollar is uh regular uh five ten and twenty Dollar bills, with the word Hawaii uh, stamped on the face of it. We were, and that was the only legal legal tender on Guam, was uh, those Hawaiian dollars. On it. Now the reason was that when the Japs conquered uh, and uh, in 1941, the paymaster for all of the islands in the Pacific were captured as well. Many millions of dollars in United States money were captured as well, and the and U.S. government did not want as poor Marines to to uh, recapture that money and send it home. So we couldn't use it on the islands. So, we, so that was because uh, the only tender that we could use was the the Hawaiian dollars. That, that's a little side thing. And another thing that they told us on that, that ship at that time on it, to watch out for airplanes that are uh, civilian-type airplanes that are crashed out there, and to, and to find out that they were what they were still looking for was Amelia Earhart. Yeah, so no. they were had, and uh, um, her her plane was uh, at that time supposed to have been downed of uh, from, uh, in uh, some of the islands around there, but uh, it turned out that they, they weren't. Amelia I Earhart actually uh, was on a small island and was captured by a uh, uh, Japanese troller and was brought to Guam and through Saipan, and uh, was seen on Saipan, and so was uh, Amelia Earhart on it. But uh, they were told at the time to keep looking for civilian airplanes that had and killed uh, had it, uh, crashed in uh, the islands there. But uh, I have I have a letter. I won't go into that. That's secret. So anyway, uh, this uh, we got there on, uh, on Guam and we started our uh, training again. Uh, so after all that, I used to hitchhike all over Guam to the seabees uh, and get uh, get their food and
0: get the best food in the military a real egg well what's interesting i actually got married to my first wife in guam so it's it's crazy to talk to you and there you were fighting for your life you know some 55 years prior and i was standing in the chapel um you know marrying this american girl that you know on this beautiful tropical island where now the Japanese that were you know, our friends again were coming on vacation.
1: Well, as long not you bring that in, I'll tell you, on uh, last year, I got a call from the uh, Justice Department in San Jose from the uh, Superior Court on it. A- be, the judge could come over and visit with me and talk about his parents were in uh, in that concentration camp on Guam. Really? And he was, and his parents were released by part of my company that was over there. Uh, and uh, his name was, uh, Joe Gogo, Justice Gogo, I think they call it. On anyway, and and San Jose, he was going to be the uh, uh, the president uh, of the United States was going to uh, assign him as the ambassador to Guam, as it was. Anyway, uh, he came over and visited with me, and he thanked me, and I. And he brought the flag, the Guam Romanian flag over with him and a bunch of souvenirs and he gave them, gave them to me. And uh I signed the uh Romanian flag or like that. And they were going to to have a parade on Guam and wanted me to be uh one of the Grand Marshals for the the parade over there Because right? every every year I don't remember what month I think it was July, but every year that they have a parade to celebrate the Americans uh, on Guam. But that uh, it was uh, it was quite uh, quite interesting to talk to you. I get a uh, Christmas cards and Valentine cards and stuff like that from the judge on right? Thank me for because if it wasn't for, was for saving his parents, he wouldn't be here. <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely.
1: Yeah, so, so that was rather. That was, as uh, long as you brought the American, your, wedding thing. I thought maybe I'd throw that in there. But they were at, Guam is a great place. It's it, beautiful. It, it's a great place. Uh, I have a pic. Uh, I think it's some place in them. I have a picture of the last PBY that left Guam before it was uh, uh, captured by the Japanese in 1941 on it. They had one, the last PBY that left with the was full. On it. I have a picture. And one of the ladies' parents uh, that my wife, my wife had gone to school with in um in westport oregon uh, her uh mother's parents on it were uh on that plane on as it left Ghana. so uh, that was fun it's
0: amazing so i mean you've you've obviously told us a lot about the time in guam the book details a lot more of you know the the different um moments that you have when it came to combat i would love to just bring you into iwo jima so then we can then transition to you know your your transition out of the military but obviously that's a very famous conflict a very different landscape than the jungles that you're used to in guam so talk to me about the the iwo jima attack and then you know we'll we'll work on from there
1: on guam we we were training again for uh a different kind of, uh, action than we have been faced before. Before we were, uh, in, uh, Guadalcanal, we were in deep jungle. And then on over to, uh, Guam, we were in farmland and, uh, jungle. And then we were training for, uh, hills and, uh, caves and stuff like that in which we had never been trained before. So. And so we all felt that there was going to be different uh, on it. So. But anyway, on February the <coughs> in February 1945 uh, we left Guam, we left uh, Guam as a unit uh, third division the uh, fourth and fifth division left uh, uh, Guadalcanal, Guam, and Saipan. The 21st Marines, which was, I was a member of the 21st Marines, uh, of the 3rd Division, were back up reserve for the uh, landing on Iwo Jima. We were, uh, they, they, uh, the Now, I'll tell you, they, the generals, that'll put me in uh, right connection, I think. The generals thought that, uh, were thinking that uh, we were going to have a a, uh, heavy casualty going on Iwo Jima and they wanted a regiment. Uh, on on uh, on the water, they called them floating reserve because uh, to put forth another regiment, they wanted them right then. They didn't want to wait to come from Saipan or something, but take another take a couple of days or something. When they want a reserve. They want them now. So they had the 21st Marines in the. Uh, Harbor, waiting to go ashore. On February the 19th, the the third and fourth division landed on Iwo Jima. On that date, uh, we were 50 miles away from uh, from Iwo Jima, heading toward. uh, When I say we, the 21st Marines. Uh, 50 miles away from the Iwo Jima harbor where we were supposed to be, right? and uh, we got word aboard ship at that time that there was uh, any uh, hardly any action at all on the landing of Iwo Jima, and that uh, that the uh, they were, had expected. Uh, Heavy casualty load at that time, and and uh, it didn't happen. And then uh, until uh, after the third, the third, the fourth, fourth, and fifth division, the fifth division went uh, straight for uh, Mount Suribachi. and they went above the uh, started up the mountain. Mount Suribachi is a An extinct volcano, uh, and it has lava holes, lava caves, and all that. all the way up the up the mountain to the top of the mountain, and the uh, fourth divisions were uh, uh, assigned the first airport, first airfield, which was uh, the closest one toward toward Mount Suribachi. They started and, had, and started toward, now I can't remember if that was north or south uh, on it, uh, at the other end, uh, toward the uh, uh, other air, airfields. But, but the 5th Division started, uh, the 28th Marines of the 5th Division started up the, up the mountain on it. And uh, the 4th Division uh started, uh, let's say, uh, south, I don't know if that was the direction or not, uh, and uh, to drive the uh, Japanese from there. And that cut off the Japanese between uh, the two, between the airport, airfield, and the Mount Suribachi. Part of the fourth was the, uh, came in on the other side of the island uh, to meet the fourth division on it. During this during that day of the fifth uh, of the uh, February the nineteenth, the twenty uh, first Marines came in on the USS Jackson and we came in uh, into uh, Iwo Jima Harbor. They and at that time. All hell broke out from the mountain because they—they figured that uh, The Japanese figured it that, that they were all uh, on shore and in the places they uh, that they had marked. The Japanese had just about every square inch of that landing zone on it marked, and their mortars kept in firing the mortars as it came as the rest of the. Units who are coming in now. Tell you right now, the CBs. This is a first battle that the CBs have ever been with the landing force that came in and on the initial. Normally, the CBs were uh, came in maybe the next day or so. Uh, after it had been more secured, landing zone would be more secured. But this time they came in right with the uh, uh, with the uh, uh, fourth division on it, most of them on it. The Japs had mortars all over that place on it and it all over the, the lower end of this Mount Suribachi. And uh, they they shelled all of those uh, square inches, I would say, uh, along that island. And uh, and it was, you just couldn't, and you can't imagine the number of people that were killed right there. Thousands right there on the beach, on the landing beach of the fourth and fifth. It seems like the limbs were one of the biggest thing. on arm, leg, knees, uh, legs are, uh, were uh, just scattered all over the place. And heads uh, were just scattered all over the place. Of uh, course, the 4th Division were, uh, were chasing the main group north or if it's north I don't remember if it north or south on how the line I just don't remember that and uh, and the fifth division was was uh, uh, doing the same over there they were they were shoving off of the uh, over toward the, uh, the to the fourth division and uh, they were splitting up the Japanese uh, and they had a the 28th uh, Marines had a a real tough time going up that hill, and I talked to one of the one of the pilots from one of the aircraft carriers that was on Iwo Jima, and he said and when they made their, fi- their final you know, they, when they made their uh, pass over the uh, the landing zone. That it looked like looked like a bunch of ants. It was just full of dead bodies and stuff on it. And then uh, we we stayed there on, on that was the night on the nineteenth, the evening of the nineteenth, on it. And uh, we were called. The twenty first was on floating reserve. And we were called on the next day, the twentieth. I can't remember the commander's general now. I can't remember who it was. He gave us gave the word to uh, depart from the ship and get on your get on the uh, on the LCIs and LDCs. He gave the word to go over side. So we went over the side. And climbed down the ropes onto our uh, on our perspective uh, landing barge, landing craft, and uh, started rendezvous around the ship. Our ship was uh, USS Jackson, and we waited, and we circled our ship for six hours trying to get uh, organized to go ashore, and surf was up, he said six-foot surfs, but uh, I don't know about how they uh, judged that, but anyway, we are waiting for the uh, beach master to give us the word that they had room for us. They had, didn't have room for us on the on the landing zone. All attacks that were disabled, all the, all the, the uh, LCI's landing ship's infantry were uh, uh, crashed, blown up, side, had just all kinds of equipment. Uh, Men were were lying around like in pieces all over they had uh, graveyard uh, people with uh, with gunny sacks picking up the, the uh, arms and legs and whatever and uh, they said that uh, we couldn't land the beach the beach captain told us that he wasn't going to allow us to land. So our general says, go back aboard ship. So after we've been floating around on the ship, round and round and round the ship for six hours and it's hard to serve, and we got back, had to go back and climb up the ladder, that uh, rope ladder again, get back aboard ship. We got aboard ship, on it, and that was with the 21st Marines on the tw- on the 20th, and the ship's uh, cook had sandwiches and coffee all ready for us. And we hit, and they gave us that we had no wounded or anything coming back aboard ship. We were full force for the 20th on the tw- night of the 20th. Morning of the twenty-first, we had uh, we got the word to debark from the ship again. So uh, we got off the of, uh, got off of the ship and uh, headed in toward the night. Uh, on it. And me and my crew were on a Amtrak on it, and we came in and we landed. Uh, on on part of the Yellow Beach on uh, it and uh, right by the oh, I can remember that name uh, uh, well it's where the Japanese shipped out their uh, uh, their uh, uh, salt and uh, stuff off of the Island on it, and uh, it, it's a, anyway. I, I never can remember that name of that uh, uh, that harbor. Um, anyway, uh, we came we came in, and as we came in, we were supposed to meet, meet the fourth division uh, at ten o'clock that morning on the twenty first on it. Um, uh, uh, we were held up, uh, the 4th Division had pushed the Japanese off of, uh, off of airfield number one and pushed them. I'm, I'm going to get south or north. I'm going to push them away from it toward the other end of the island I'll put because I can't remember the, that's the des, the, the, uh, direction. We hit the beach and, uh, uh, crawled, uh, and the Amtrak crawled up on the beach about, uh, 20, I would say about 20 yards and like that. And, you, uh, uh, and we got, uh, oh, they opened fire on us, uh, from the, uh, rock quarry, quarry <laughs> <laughs> there. And, uh, machine gun, uh, on us as well as the rest of them, like that. and. Uh, we jumped off of the uh, the Amtrak, and uh, we had seven men uh, at that time, and I lost I lost two of them. Me, uh, me, and my uh, other guys went off on one side of the on the port side, and uh, and two of my men got off on the starboard side with their bunch on it, and and. The starboard side had, that's where the, I, know, I forgot that name again, get that fast. Uh, anyway, a machine gun was stationed was up there and killed two of my guys there on it, as as, as more of them. And we lost uh, a lot of men coming in on that particular uh, area on uh, it, and uh, we were pinned down. As we came in on, uh, the 4th Division, at that time, had, uh, gone clear through, uh, airfield number no. one and were, were waiting at the beginning of, of, uh, uh, of them on the morning of the 21st. That's when we were supposed to meet the, the uh, um, the 4th Division and, uh, relieve them because they had been fighting, uh, for two days, the 19th and 20th. And, uh, so, and, but we couldn't make it, uh, because we were held down as well on And we were supposed to be there at 10 o'clock. Well, we couldn't make it on um, it. We stayed there. That night uh, in that area, and we, we found him mopped up to his uh, machine guns at the quarry. I remember that now, at the rock quarry. And uh, we were supposed to meet them then the following day, and uh, we got pinned down on them. Well, uh, it so happened that the 4th Division. Had been waiting for us at the beginning of airfield number two, and that's where we were supposed to re- relieve them on it. Uh, someone told a runner or a radio or what told the uh, commanding officer of the 4th Division that they overrun on by one, uh, near one. That the uh, the Japanese were forming in Airfield Number Two and was working their way around uh, between us and the Fourth Division. The Twenty-first Marines, was that the regiment was ready, was on um, by the rock prairie there by the beach, and, and uh, the Japanese were going. Work around and come in behind the 4th Division. Well, it sure, it happened that, uh, uh, they didn't realize that we were coming in from the, from the beach at that time. And, but the Japs were trying to sneak in behind the 4th Division and they couldn't make it because when we were, when they came up between us, then we pinned them down. So now we had a whole bunch of gaps between us and uh so they did yeah, the fourth division just turned around and started shooting them, and we shot them from behind, so we wiped the uh, the whole bunch out right there at the beginning on it. We finally went up to got them, we went to uh uh through met the fourth division at the beginning of the airfield number two on um, we fought uh we we went through them uh, and left them at the beginning of airfield and we and the twenty first Marine started regiment started uh in to take airfield number two. Well uh, all those Japanese that they had chased from airfield number two, which was right down by the Mount Siribachi, uh they were all uh all holed up there on airfield number two and we ran into them like that and we had one hell of a fight there. And they turned the uh, mortars that were on wheels toward us and fought and fired those right down, the, you know, uh, four or five feet up off the ground on it, as if, as if they were rifles. And, they ended up, and as I say, lay were as But we finally got through that bunch on it. Um, on the second, we fought all day, we fought all night. And the second day, I think of the second day, um, I got hit in the head with a piece of Either by a shell or by, by a bullet, I don't know which, on He hit my helmet and uh, knocked me out, knocked my helmet off, cut a big hole in it. And I was out uh, And uh, we got, the rest of the 21st kept going through, and my, my guys, I lost uh, all of them there, all but two on on that fight and uh we got uh i was out and some guy from the fourth division came came up behind me and and shook my back i think he was trying to get my knife is what he was trying to do but anyway and that woke me up uh, and then from then on i was working with the fourth division because my third division had, had already, the 21st of had already gone through at the rest of them. And, uh, I finally, uh, and I, he asked me where I was from and I told him what it was. He said, well, they're way up ahead of us on it. They've already gone through. So, uh, we got on up there. It took us five days to go through airfield number two at uh, day and night, day and night. We were airdropped food. Corsairs, I think they were. I think they were Corsairs and, and that did that. And uh, we got over to, on the other side of airfield number two. And uh, by that time I had found another helmet and uh, I was pretty well with a headache and uh, got over there on the other side of uh, airfield number two and they have uh, have a sulfur plant and a sulfur field over there the Japs had used sulphur for other other reasons and other things, I guess. And then they went to uh, they used to go out through the to the, the quarry and and that's where they shipped it from. That's where we came in. We got uh, uh, over there on that side. And I asked if anybody knew where the Twenty First Greens were, and he says, "Well, we saw two guys that uh, he thought that they were." They were strangers, and so I went over there, and that was my boy b a armin and uh my uh scout and then that was me and then so there was only three of us left out of the seven uh, uh they were uh we had no more company. it wiped them out, and uh, just the three. So we stayed down there, there was a 20, 20, 27, 28, 27th or 28th in that area. 27th, I think it was. Uh, some general came by, and uh, we three were huddled in uh, one big shell hole. asked us where we were from, I, and uh, I said, that, uh, we're the 21st Marine, 3rd Division, and uh, he says, well, they're, they're not here, uh, and I don't know where they are. He says, but you're going to be in the 4th Division now. And so we finish up. He so says, we've got to take those two radio stations out and go and go through Moriyama Airfield uh, Village, Yodamayama Village. So we went to, uh, went, uh, followed him up through the, he and his, uh, I think he was his gunny sergeant. Anyway, he was out there uh, with them and they were gathering up uh, men that were had just gone through the second airfield. And we took off from there and we followed the 4th Division then the three of us, over to Noriyama village, to the Notoyama village, which is on the side of airfield number two, then went from there to uh, uh, the radio station, knocked it out, and then we started going over from airfield number from uh, Hill 362. Uh, I think that was on this. That was on this. I'll uh, see, 4th, 27th, 27th, 28th, 27th, I think it was. And it took us two days to get through those. And then uh, then we headed toward uh, 362. We got pinned down on 362 for two days. Uh, no, for one, for, uh, 362 was one day. And we left that morning. on. Uh, uh, on the first of March, I think I'm getting the dates uh, lost a day someplace. First of March, and it took us two days. Uh, and then we went over to uh, uh, to Hill three three eighty Now three eighty two is the second highest peak on Iwo Jima. And, uh, Mount Sir was the highest peak. And, uh, 382 was designated, and, and it was the second highest on it. And they wanted us to have high ground. So we tried to get up, uh, go for high ground. And they had, uh, only one place that we could go through. on. On uh, 382 was up between two big rocks and uh, two big uh, rocks and uh, and stone caves, and then uh, we got into uh, where there was a uh, we get up up uh, over started to go over the hill, and then the Japanese would, uh had two. Pillboxes up there, and they were knocking us down every time on them, and uh, with hand grenades and and mortars. We'd go up, and they'd pull us, knocked us down again, and we'd go back down and reorganize and go up again, and we kept that up for two days. And finally, on March the 3rd, they sent us up, and they used my scout as the first one. He was the first one to go up over the hill between these two big rocks that we were, that's how we were going to take it. And, uh, he went up over the hill, went up over the hill, and got, got up there and went around, and he went on down. Then I followed the scout. And uh, I got up there on top of the hill. I looked around like that, and then down machine gun opened up from the from the shell, uh, one of the pill boxes. It sprayed my chest. That was a Nambu twenty-five. Sprayed my chest and arm, and. I fell down again. Not bleeding like a stuck pig. And I Corman and my arm came up, got a hold of my feet, and they pulled me back down into a big shell hole. And then Corbin started treating me and then McCoy, the uh, airman came up and he, he went out, uh, got all the same stuff, and he went right over to that uh, pill box and he cleaned the pill box out. It and he killed, it. he had four people in there and he had two machine guns on it and He got them, cleaned them all out. Um, I was in the shell hole. They were still operating, uh, not operating, they were still uh, uh, fixing me up. And then pretty soon, uh, McCoy came down. And he was bleeding all over his back on it. They threw a hand grenade right behind him and it blew up and blew in the rocks and stuff and the, the pieces of, of shell and, and rock, stones went all through his back. Uh, um, he was just peckered with poles all through his, through his back and they were bleeding. Uh, and came down the shell hole with me and I stayed there. The coroner had put put a tag on me with what I was, where I was shot, and what I was doing there, and what treatment he did. And he put that all on a on a tag, and he pinned it to my blouse, upper blouse, by my neck, and. Pretty soon the machine, the uh, martyrs start falling in the shell hole where we were on it. And he says, Can you walk right? I said, I sure the hell can. He says, Well, let's go. We couldn't get anybody any stretcher bearers up there because it was. It was too dangerous, right then. At that time, they were shooting one out of the of bears and then uh, they wouldn't wouldn't have anybody to carry you anyway. So we decided we started back, and uh, I have uh, I grabbed hold of his arm, and he grabbed uh, and uh, he. Gave one of the guys his, uh, uh his BAR, because they didn't want to take that kind of firepower away from the front. And he had BAR, and I gave my, my rifle to, uh, I think it was, uh, to, to him for protection. So we started walking back and we were about about a mile and a half or maybe a mile from uh, from the uh, beach where we were to be evacuated off of the off the island. We were walking together along along the side of airfield number two. And the guys were still walking mopping up there. And a B-29 came down. He was just trying to land right there on it. And boy, those son of a bitches are big when they're you know 15, 20 feet off the ground. They are big. And he was looking for a place to land, but there was just no no place to land there on on number two. So he kept on going, and he got into an field number one. Number one was. By that time, the CBs had finished their tractor work and had been cleaning up a, a good landing site for. And the, the Corsairs uh, and uh, fighter planes had landed down are there already and uh, had a good uh, uh, laying field. I knew that was they could land landed there pretty good, so the uh, and the b29 uh, the, the, the Corsairs took off and uh, for another run someplace. and then uh, the b-29 came in and landed and I think I was the first b29 to land or able and that was uh, that's what we were fighting for we were fighting to get those those fields clear enough so that they could so that the fighters could uh, escort the 29s when they were flying over to to Japan and uh, bomb them. So they were using the the airfields already for that purpose and, and saving them. So I stayed with McCoy there. Uh, When we got over to airfield number one, the the evacuation for the wounded were just off to the side of airfield number one. And uh, they were waiting for pickup from uh, uh, different kinds of transportation going out to the hospital ships. They stayed on the hospital. They stayed there on a I stayed there with McCoy. I was laying on my stomach and here's... I was laying on my back and here's laying on the stomach. We we're having a cigarette and talking and visiting. I got a, I, I turned up and looked at McCoy. And he says, uh, and "He says I'm going to take off." And he says, "This one has got the ambulatories. So I said, "Okay." So we shook hands, and thanked for being with each other and company. And he walked off and walked all over, went to his uh, 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 lst. Got on that. I just, that was the last I saw McCoy on it, but uh, I think he got through the war okay. But, uh, and I, I had asked him how our uh, Navarro, our scout, was. he said he didn't know for sure. He says I just the last I saw he was uh, he was shooting and running toward a couple of pillboxes out there, so. He said he didn't know. So by that time, I'd been hit, so I don't know what happened to Navarro. and McCoy and, and, uh, and I were the only ones out of Cape Town that we ever found. So until we got, until I got to the Stockton Marine Corps Club and met. Uh, Ted Salisbury. And he was on a, even the uh, same company. And he thought he was the last one on Because uh, he hadn't met anybody at all. And maybe I hadn't seen him either and met a lot of them out there, but wounded on, um, I couldn't tell. Uh, so they transferred me over to uh, that, and then I stayed on that, went over on the hospital ship. And uh, went from there to Saipan and picked up uh, another uh, bunch of going there, going toward the States. And left Saipan, and went to, uh, uh, to Johnson Island, which is out, out near uh, Pearl Harbor. The Hawaiian Islands, and uh, landed there with uh, in a PBI, and uh, a corpsman came on board the, the plane and sprayed us with DDT. They didn't want uh, us to. Uh, spread any bugs for the on their beautiful island. <laughs> yeah, so we got those, they cleaned us off there and took us over to the uh, uh, hospital, I can't remember that. I think I think it was the army hospital and and uh, I stayed there for uh, a couple of days, and uh, doctor came by and looked at uh, my tag. And well, first, first when we landed when we landed there at uh, Johnson Island, not Johnson, landed at the main island. Uh, he looked at my tag. And they took off to see what ward I should go to. And my tag said combat fatigue. And they put me in a combat fatigue ward on there. I had no nurses on there, no doctors on there, no nothing on there. And uh, my, my bandage needed changed badly and cleaned it all and stuff. Doctor came through to, to check us out and asked me what I was doing there. And I, I said, they put me here. And uh, so he sent me, he says, oh, schedule this man for a tap. And so I said, well, wait, that's, at least I've got something going. So after he left, I asked the nurse, I said, well, what's a tap? He said, well, says, "You're you're bleeding on the inside," and says, "You've got blood in your chest cavity, and they have to get the chest get the blood out." And says, "They they stick a needle in your back and drain it, drain it that way." I said, "Good Lord!" <laughs> so. Uh, I went to bed at evening that evening, and that night I, I woke up and I thought I'd wet the bed because uh, I had peed all over the, all over the uh, uh, rubber mattress that they had there. And uh, so I hollered for the nurse. The night nurse came over and she looked at me. And, asked what for, and I told him, I, I, told him that I had wet my bed, I think, because I said I'm just laying a bunch of porn. Uh, She turned the night light on, and she looked at me and turned it off right away. And it took off. And uh, we came back with uh, a couple of other guys and uh, turned the lights on like that. And then pull the cover back and I'd been left, been laying in the pool of blood because the, the bandage was off and I had rolled over on my left side and and all that blood that was in my chest came out and went all over and that's what I was laying in
0: So you tapped yourself
1: And so, yeah and So he said they said, "Bro, we'll have to cancel that." And I said, "What? They said cancel that? You're not going to have a tap tomorrow?" So, oh, thank God! <laughs> 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 hey, oh, I can remember that. Nah, I was happy on that. Anyway, they, uh, the next day, they, uh, after they changed my bed and stuff like that, the next day they came over and. They transferred me up to going to uh, to the states. Uh, so I took. Uh, and I think, and I'm not for sure. I think I I think I flew, cause to the naval hospital landing. And I think it was a PBY. Yeah, and I flew. I'm, I'm, I just I can't remember the ship. at all. but I. Because I think we uh, I flew in. I got in there and uh, uh, they looked at my tag. I had combat fatigue. And that's where I went. They took me in and put me in a combat fatigue ward. On it. I told you that's about the story I had about combat fatigue and PTSD. On it. Guy misdiagnosed me on board ship because I had and because I had knocked his butt across a hole with the uh, when, when they were going to take my arm off. Wow.
0: I mean, you were tired of being shot, basically. <laughs>
1: oh, so, anyway, that's where I got put at first on uh, it, and uh, and it still got my it's in, it's in my records on uh, it that. Uh, It's combat fatigue on on the thing. I didn't say anything about my wounds at that time at all. Right. So uh, anyway, uh, I got into San Diego Hospital, and I stayed there for a month, I think, about a month. Then I got shipped home. Had a few incidents in in the hospital, but then. Mine, And that got me home. I flew home. I got up from San Diego. I uh, uh, hitched a ride, uh, or, oh, uh, little side. I had met my wife, my coming wife, honey, uh, in Astoria, Oregon, when I was stationed at Tug Point. That's where I had met her, um, and uh, and her sister had married a Navy guy, and they were stationed in San Diego. So I was able to sneak aboard uh, the, not the board, see, a way out of the hospital, and uh, got a cab. I Went over and met my future wife and her sister and her husband, and stayed there that afternoon and the evening. And then first thing in the morning, well, I snuck back into the the uh, hospital, uh, so. and I stayed there until uh, uh, I got. Uh, and then she came home back back home. To her Astoria home, and and graduated out of school, and uh, I, I went to hospital, and uh, had a trans uh, had a a furlough transfer. That was the first furlough I had had in the Marine Corps. I'd never been, never had a a day off more than. 72-hour pass on in the four years. Uh, and then, uh, when I was overseas, they told me and the rest of the raiders, you're, you're only required to be over there 12 months. That's all. So, Ken Burns came. We were all short-timers, we thought, but Corps uh, didn't think that. Uh, they said, no, it's going to be a year and a half before you didn't go home. Maybe a year and a half, no, it's duration. But we never did get a chance to get out of, off of there due to the turnover. Amount. Anyway, I got, I got home on a leave transfer, and uh, they had asked me where I wanted to go. For my last six months of the service, and I said I wanted to go. I wanted to be a drill instructor at Paris Island, or that's the closest to Arkansas that I can get. So so I caught a a uh, train. I think it was to uh, Kansas City. I I think that's where it was. And then, uh, no, just the opposite. I got, a, I got, a, I got one from, from San Diego to Kansas City on a plane. I sent one boxes to get out as a military plane. And, uh, and I got it uh, in uh, Kansas City. Then I took a, a, a train down to Arkansas. I met my folks, and I stayed there. Until I was ready for my leave to be up, I transferred. Then I transferred over to uh, uh, to Paris Island as a drill instructor until my discharge.
0: So what? I'm sorry, Frank. I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just going to say, what What was it like? Because up to that point, you'd seen. Fierce fighting, you'd seen what Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman talks about as the most traumatic version of combat, which is the extremely close bayonet, you know, knife fighting that you obviously encountered several times. So, how did you handle physically your transition as far as your wounds, but also mentally? I mean, you end up writing a book about, you know, touching on PTSD. What was that journey like for you mentally after being in the South Pacific, literally fighting for your life for multiple years?
1: Well, uh, I got, when I got, the uh, I, was, I was put into the uh, PTSD or combat war on it. I was put into that on it. And uh, I didn't have regular medical care because if I wanted something, my bandage changed, I had to go someplace else to get it on it. Uh, and in that, when my time came to discharge uh, like that, a different guy in the PTSD ward was in charge of it. And he released me without conferring to the medical doctor. The medical doctor had, uh, and I had uh, what they called a proud flesh sticking out of my chest about an inch long, and my my wounds were trying to heal, and my muscle was sticking out. And they referred to it as proud flesh. But the the one doctor didn't tell ask the other doctor or get a release from him. So they released me. And so I Took off, and then when I, uh, I took off, and I still had my bandage on. I still had this muscle sticking out of my chest. Right? I got there uh, in uh, Arkansas, and my dad worked on at. Uh, he was a supervisor of the, of the crew that worked on uh, poison gas facilities. And uh, when I got there in uh, in Arkansas, then, of course, I went home and uh, dad was all, uh, he was all uh, wanting to know what happened and where'd you go and what'd you do, you kill anybody and all that stuff. And mother was different, different kind of a meeting. Anyway, I showed him my, uh, my chest and so he peeled. Off the bandage off my chest, and here's this damn piece of muscle sticking out about an inch right. on he was about ready to blow. Right. He was so mad at the, at the navy doctors for letting me go like that. And then, uh, so he called up the medical doctor on the bay and told him the story. And they took me over to the uh, to the medical ward at the army hospital there, uh, and uh, uh, put me into the ward there and asked what it was uh, that I was wanted for. And the dad explained to it that I had just been released from the medical doctor I mean, from the PTSD doctor and all that kind of stuff. Anyway. He says, well, he looked at it, and he says, well, this has to go. We have to take that off. So he just uh, said, go in there and disrobe. Says, and, and I told the nurse nurse, prep him up. So they took me right in and uh, and froze the part that they were going to cut off. And then they cut that out uh, and redid it. Um, and he was pissed. <laughs> he couldn't believe that there, uh, uh, they had let someone out with a war wound that wasn't even healed yet. On well, again, the reason was I was in a PTSD ward, and he didn't confer with the medical ward. He had permission from one, not the other, and that's why. And I took it. But I wanted to get out of there As I said, my dad was a bugler, and he was a member of the Drum and Bugle Corps. And I knew drums, so I joined the Drum and Bugle Corps with him. And he and I used to march in the military parade together. I'd play drums and he'd play the bugle. And he was the most happy man on earth to have his son home, of course, and then the, and being able to be out there and, and play with, uh, in a band with him. So. But he reacted that way. My mother was mad, of course, and she, she did want to look at the wounds for a while, and she did. And I had uh, two holes in my, my chest my clavicle was cracked on and above my uh, my arm or above my uh, lungs right, and uh, went out through my uh, chest and went through my muscle in my left arm and they were going to uh, um, amputate my left arm. That's what made me mad aboard ship. Right? But I had been massaged on my arm and shoulder for a long time from uh, a, a little uh, uh, woman uh, Marine nurse corpsman type of hospital. And she went massaged around my arms and shoulders on it. And she said to me she, she, what it was, is that it was my arm muscles and nerves were trauma, still in trauma, and uh, therefore you couldn't. So all I could do was just raise my wrist up, and that's it. So, but uh, but I got home. So it didn't. PTDSD didn't set in until uh, after we were married, and uh, it. Um, for some reason, I don't know what shook it off. Um, 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 I think what shook it off. I was I was president of the American Legion in uh, uh, in Florence, Florence, Oregon, and uh, seeing all of the guys out there and talking to him and I simply brought up a hell lot memories and stuff, and I, I think that's what set that, that part off. And so I started drinking. and I uh, found out uh, there wasn't the way to go. And so I, I saw a little help. I got help from uh, uh, some guys in the uh, American region there. talked about um, and stuff so it was okay until I got back over here in California and went in again they told me that I'd never get rid of it to talk it out. that's why I'm here. I want to talk it out. I bring back a lot of memories. I
2: know the guys.
0: Uh, and that's about for now. You got any questions? <laughs> no, sir. Well, I mean, firstly I want to thank you for for telling the story and the fact that you're moved, the fact that you're, you know, emotional about this is exactly what these conversations should be about. Because my generation I, it's, it's such a bizarre thing. Your generation is what we call the the greatest generation, you know, and you saw and did so much that no one should ever have to see or have to do. And then you have my generation that was raised with this insane notion that men don't cry, men don't show emotion, kind of like the patent example that you gave me. Just just give them a little slap around the face and the PTSD will be gone which has driven so many men and women into the grave because of that ridiculous notion. So um, hearing from someone like yourself, and I always point to the the 101st Easy Company from Band of Brothers, the, the TV show that they made, the real men that talk on that, you can see the just sheer emotion in them too. So by hearing your story and, and hearing you get choked up is exactly what younger generations need to hear that this of course as you said how how could it not affect you that you had to take lives that you watched your friends killed that you you know and then came back and even some of the the situations where you know you were left wounded and feeling abandoned in in a psych ward when you should have been having your wounds addressed so I just, I mean, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for taking the time to walk us through an event where very few voices are left to tell that story and for, for being courageous to tell the other side, which is, you know, the part that most people shove down, you know, that the, the impact mentally and physically on the men and women that we send to war and what they bring home in their body and what they bring home in their mind.
1: Well, uh It helped me a lot on it. I go go to the uh, Stockton Marine Corps Club on it, and I uh, meet a lot of good people that have gone through the present-day war. I'll call it that. They've been through Vietnam on uh, and uh, some of their stories and stuff on it. and, And that has helped me. I've given speeches. To uh, the uh, uh, Sacramento uh, club and their home uh, uh, Marine Corps uh, birthday balls, Uh, I've spoken there. I've given two or three speeches to uh, on Iwo Jima, and uh, that's helped. And by getting it away from me, I even put it in my book that I have uh, written uh, that that's what I think it would be good for those people, those men and women that uh, have all this traumatic experience on it, if they get rid of it and, uh, and talk and let people know, you know, so, and don't say it's a, uh, when they ask, you know, what happened in the world, oh, nothing, we a little bit, and stuff like that. Well, hell, it, uh, uh, tell them. Tell them what it is. Uh, know about it, and uh, let people know what it is. Uh, maybe won't, they won't think about, uh, if they do come into, uh, or they have the authority or the vote, if you will, in Congress or so, about uh, going into war again or causing things to go to war. God, don't do that. They do something else if you have to do it. But don't, the war is hell. Uh, but get rid of it. Tell somebody, tell somebody, show your, show your, what you did in the service on it. Uh, let them know that it's not just a, uh, let it play you. James is the John Wayne had a speech and uh, of course a have written for him but he had a speech uh, that uh, on uh, on Iwo Jima on it after the first day on it uh, he he talked. And he has the the words, the words that uh, they, they sounded like he really meant it, you know. But that was exactly what it was. He meant it. He really meant that on it. Uh, it it's not all glory. I, I, uh, I see some of the movies that uh, always throw, of course, they've got to it. You've got to sell it, too. But, uh, the the romance in it, and some of them show what their uh, what their wife and our girlfriend are going through, and um, which is good. And, and they're they're suffering too. The home folks suffer, um, at, uh, but I, that's why I jumped at the, at the uh, uh, chance to say my say my story um, and. I've lost a lot of my memory, otherwise I used to be able to. When I started writing my book on it, my wife was against it. And then, Because I had referrals, I had uh, things that I had to look up. I had to look up the names and uh, of ships. I was on 11 different ships overseas, on going to and from uh, different islands, on, uh, both uh, far For combat, or for just being transferred, Uh, and that's a lot of ships.
0: That is,
1: (laughs) yeah. I got the uh, one uh, one one submarine and a whole bunch of ships. Uh, uh, But uh, uh, and and it's an adventure for a young kid. That's adventure. It's great, and uh, and I realize that, And, and I realize that I. I'm 96 years old now, uh, my memory is getting a little short, uh, uh, and I know that people, and there's not much of us left, um, uh, a 90, not much left of 96 year old fight or no fight. Uh, but, uh, and I know that they, uh, uh, my wife asked me about, well, why do you want to go there? Uh, what do you want to do there? Uh, I said, I want to be there. I says just to give some of these little four and five year old kids an opportunity just to shake hands with someone that has been in the fight that I have been in too, and it's it's good. And as old as I am, I'm I'm a grandfather to a lot of, them, but I'm not. There is a man that I bum around with on these different occasions on it, uh, uh in uh. And Stockton, he was on Iwo Jima. He was wounded the same day that I was. On, um, he says he is at least on March the third, nineteen forty-five. On, um, and he's a hundred and six. Wow, that's ten years older than I am.
0: So, a whippersnapper to him.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's you know that's old. That's an old man. He calls me kid. <laughs>
0: My grandmother's 104. She's still going strong. Yeah, see, so,
1: and it's nice to see her, oh you know. Uh, and I see some of the kids when they when they tell him he's 106. You know, their eyes are big as saucers. They can't see that he's over 100 years old. And he was in he he was in China. Uh, he was one of the old China Marines. Uh, and he went in, uh, I think he said in 1934 or something like that. But he's in a, a home in, in Stockton named Major William. Oh, crap. Got his.
0: <laughs> White. Major William White. White. Major,
1: Major William White on it. And. Uh, 106 on july the
0: 21st incredible
1: that was 96 on july the 5th
0: not december
1: like the
0: the the old birth certificate (laughs) 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 well frank i just want to say thank you like i said before i mean to hear the whole story to you know to to give the uh you know the background to you even joining up and it definitely gives us a perspective versus maybe some of the mentalities these days um you know the the physical side the mental side the transition out it's been an incredible conversation um you did write a book and, uh,
1: my i wrote a uh, a book last year or uh, year uh, last year or ninth, i think it was 2019 on uh, it and it's called Battles in the Pacific, World War Two. And you can get them at Amazon. And uh, uh, they print them up, and they have a real good uh, uh, report on that. That has a uh, story that uh, about what uh, I did in those time. It has a little romance in it because that's when I met my wife on it. I was married for seventy-four years on it, and that was her first date and my first date on it. Amazing. So it, it, it it lasted a long time. On it. So it uh, and I'd like more people to buy it, ready to kind of get an idea and have it in their, uh, in their book reading on it that you uh, possibly can. Right? And it also details a lot of the stories that I just uh, detailed. Yeah,
0: so. And so, but I Absolutely. know that it's good. Yeah. Well, so just for everyone listening, I, mean, I, I read it. I got it on the, I got it the Kindle, which is the one you get on the computer just because of time. I think it was going to take a couple of weeks to ship, but um, I mean, it is. How often do you get to read? you know, a story like that. And, and there's a lot of detail in some of the conflicts and um, battles that you had and the wounds and you know, that we didn't even really get to touch on, which is good. I mean, I don't want to tell the whole book on this conversation either. So yeah. I highly recommend it. And again, you know, if we want to support someone from that generation and we want to keep the story alive, then I hope people listening will go online and get it. So it was uh, Battles in the Pacific, World War II, My Personal War Causing PTSD. So... Everyone um, looking for the what they call the, I think the subtitle or whatever it is.
1: My name right beside because there's several books on the market that go by the name of World War Two. Yes. Battle yes. in the Pacific, and uh, the Battle in the Pacific, World War II, Frank Wright, and yep. that goes right to it.
0: Um, Absolutely. Well, I just want to say again, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on today. We've been talking for almost three and a half hours now so oh, yeah. I know you you uh, told Chris you weren't you weren't sure if you're going to be able to fill 90 minutes
1: <laughs> uh, he says you know it might be an hour it uh, might be you no. Know, sometimes it's, it'll go two hours I said I don't know if I meant that
0: <laughs> well you smashed it so I, really don't, I don't think I can
1: do that and, uh, <laughs> thank you Chris you're welcome you're welcome my honor my honor to listen to your story and so uh, it's good. It's it was uh, nice to get it out. You know, that's why I, I, I have to get it out, and, uh, and this is this is my avenue to get it out. Too. Thank you very much, Chris. and Jane, thank you very much.